My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Unless you've lived on an island in the South Pacific for the last couple of decades, you know that financial identity theft is a real and present danger for us here in, in this day and age. And so we're regularly admonished to make strong, secure passwords for your online accounts, to change those passwords frequently, uh, to never, never make financial transactions on an unsecured network, right? Remember, remember, those kind of instructions are like boundary markers to protect that part of our lives, to protect something really important. And as important as those things are to protect our financial identity, there's another identity theft, maybe even a more sinister identity theft that we all face, and that's cultural identity theft. Cultural identity theft happens anytime we allow somebody else to define who we are. And whether it's through television or music or social media, too many of us spend each day living somebody else's vision for our lives. So that's why we're teaching through this series. Last week, Pastor James launched the series by talking about the new cultural identity that we, that we live in. It's kind of like you know, fish swimming in water. A lot of times we don't pay attention to the fact that there's water. Well, we're not fish. We're human beings, and we're called to pay attention to what's going on around us, the culture. And so he called it the new cultural narrative that goes something like this. He says, you must be true to yourself. You must be free to live any way you want. You have to do what makes you happy. It's your most important thing. No one has the right to tell you what is right or wrong for you. Only you determine your standards of right and wrong. That's a cultural narrative. That is just like, like fish swimming in an ocean. That's what when we, when, we, when we work and breathe and live, and this is what we're swimming in. What I find fascinating about this is how hyper-individualistic this is. According to this, you have your truth and I have mine. Now, the tragedy of that is no one of us as a human being has enough substance right here to ground ultimate truth. And so what we end up doing is clinging and holding on to slogans and labels and then waging war with tweets and sound bites because we're so sensitive to protect our truth that we end up just merely shouting at each other and holding up our slogans and end up with scenes like this. This is our cultural reality. Now, as followers of Jesus, we have good news. We have, we have the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that this good news that we have access to is not bound by any culture, no culture. In fact, what the gospel does, it critiques culture. 
and seeks to redeem culture. And that's every culture, including, my friends, church culture. With the gospel, there's both opportunity and opposition in every culture. And navigating the difference between the two can be tricky. And this is true in every culture. Again, I emphasize, including church culture. Well, this week and next week, we're going to be sending some, spending some time examining one of the hot topic labels that is in our culture all around us that everybody's being invited into as to use as an identity. That label is LGBTQ. Maybe some more letters on the end or maybe a plus because it's to be an expansive understanding. But under that cultural label, it has existed, it has come under the umbrella of equality and social justice on a rapid rate over the last decade or so to where now it has successfully, successfully been included in all conversations surrounding what it means to be a minority, what it means to exist multiculturally, and what kind of laws should protect us against discrimination. Now, before I dive in, I, I, I want to acknowledge this is a difficult and sensitive subject. There's no way in the time that I have this morning to say everything there is to say about the topic, although I'm going to take a little more time than we usually do, so just give you a heads up about that, because there is a lot to say. And I do know that whatever I communi- do, don't communicate well can and will be used against me. It's <laughs> the way it goes. So you will see me teaching a little bit more from my notes here because I want to say what I have to say and do it well. And believe me, it's not lost on me that Pastor James assigned these topics to me and then yesterday got, off on, got on an airplane and flew out of the country. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't just drive over the border into Canada either. I mean, he flew to the other side of the planet. Got to visit the Holy Land. Actually, truth be told, I volunteered to teach this. I wanted to teach this. When he's talking about the idea of this series, I'm like, let me in. I am passionate about this topic because I believe God is passionate about this topic and because God wants to invite us into something very good. Very good. I'm convinced of that. So I'm happy to teach this. Although I realize that by addressing this topic, I am stepping on some rather large cultural toes because I'm going to go deeper than tweets and slogans. And if you're looking for black and white, I told you so answers, you're going to be disappointed as well. Don't have any of those. In fact, I still have more questions than I have answers. My prayer is that by addressing these topics, I will spur honest pursuit of truth. Not just your truth. Not just my truth. Truth. I want to spur conversation amongst family members, community groups, friends, neighbors. On this topic in particular, what we need is more honest, humble, constructive dialogue. So to help with that, we have, as we have all week, we have, every, every week we have our, the sermon notes. I hope you grab some of those on the way in. If you haven't, I, please grab it on the way out. This isn't too, too important of a topic. This is our cultural moment. In there, as we often do, we have a, a discussion questions for you. Please use those to spur conversation. Talk about it. It's a difficult topic. I get it. We need to be involved in it. Another thing you'll find in there that's not often there each week is there's a resource page. Uh, Pastor James and I have gone headlong into this over the last couple of months, and we have read widely on the topic. So you see there are a number of books, websites, uh, some videos, some YouTube videos to watch, excellent resources that I invite you to take a look at. In addition, on this topic of dialogue, we want to hear and understand your questions. So if you have questions uh, around this topic, 
maybe have been bugging you for a while, I invite you to write them on the Connect card Pastor Aaron mentioned re- earlier. You know, we can do so anonymously if you need to or put your name on there, but we want to hear your questions because what we want to do is gather those and then as you see here, we want to have an open forum Q&A uh, time on, January, on June 2nd and 9th in the evenings in the dining hall uh, because this is too important of a topic not to be talking about. So give you a heads up, this week I'm going to be dealing with the LGB part of the acronym, which mostly deals with sexuality. And then next week I'm going to talk about the T and the Q, which mostly involves gender. And to begin with, I want to highlight that when, the, when in a culture, when we turn, the topic turns to sexuality, God generally gets a pretty bad rap. As if God is some kind of cosmic prude trying to keep you from being happy. And that that runs in contrast to what I read in the Bible. What I read in the Bible is God is introduced as the happiest, most passionate being in the planet who created pleasure, including sexual pleasure, so that we could share in his joy. That's the God that I read in the Bible. That's the God that, that introduces himself and wants us to know him. At the same time, he loves us so much, he places boundaries around pleasure Because he knows that everything wonderfully good has grave potential for harm. Everything wonderfully good has grave potential for harm. I mean, think about it this way. A toddler only knows that candy is the best thing ever and wants more of it, right? Give me more candy. Now, a loving parent knows that they need to put limits on candy because excessive and exclusive candy consumption will actually kill the child. Candy has a proper place, as dessert, after a healthy meal, in limited quantities. Mature people know that. But kids don't know that, and they don't care. They just want candy. That idea of God and pleasure and limits is so important on the topic of sexuality, especially when the topic comes to us in the form of a question like this. Who are you to tell me who to love? Heard that one? Yeah. Who are you to tell me who to love? It kind of sets you back, doesn't it? Oh, I don't want to get in the way of anybody trying to love somebody. No, oh, no, no, no. This slogan won the day a couple of years ago when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And in that ruling, what, what a fundamentally changed understanding of marriage that persisted across geography, time, culture, and language. Now, anyone who stands on a deep historical understanding of marriage are considered judgmental, discriminatory, homophobic, on the wrong side of history. And I want you to know, just as we get started here, I have a clear bias when it comes to answering that question. Who can tell you who to love? God can. Now, please be clear, not me speaking on behalf of God. No, the God who spoke the universe into existence, who created you and me in his image so that we could enter into and share his joy, the one who loves us more than we can fathom, who grieves deeply when we choose to reject his ways and to put our trust in ourselves, who'd rather, rather than simply condemn us for sin, did everything necessary to free us from slavery to sin, who died in our place so that he could give us forgiveness, restoration, and we can enter into his joy, who lovingly reveals his grand story in the glorious book called the Bible, and who know, so that we can know his good heart and follow his ways so, so that we could experience 
experience good and give him glory. That's who I want who can tell you who to love. And that's who I'd like to hear from today. So would you pray with me? God, I realize right now I have a microphone and that's a dangerous place to be because I am prone to error, I am prone to sin, I am, I am weak. At the same time, you call us and invite us to enter into your story, to partner in your kingdom. And so I want to do that this morning and do it well. Would you be with us? Would you be our teacher? We need you. And we believe that by your spirit, you will teach us. So I pray that believing in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk through the Bible's progressive teaching that reveals the heart of God when it comes to sexuality. And then I want to ask, how should we think and act in response? So we have a lot to cover. I hope you came ready to dig in because we're going to go and we're going to cover a lot of ground. One more caveat before I dive in, though. This isn't as much about an issue to argue as it is about people to love. This isn't as much about an issue to argue as it is about people to love. Real people with real problems, with real struggles. Not just people out there, but people right here. People like a couple of good friends of mine who, you wouldn't know it on the outside, they're happily married and have families and, and yet experience daily persistent same-sex attractions like the childhood best friends of both my daughters who are in the midst of pursuing gender transitions. Yeah, real people. And so those are the people that I carry in my mind, that I carry in my heart as I approach this topic. I want to love them well by what is said here today, and I hope that you do too. So with that in mind, let's dive in. So what we want to do, first of all, is set the foundation. Where does the Bible start? Well, we always start where the Bible starts. Well, that means we're going to start in Genesis, right? With the creation story. In Genesis chapter 1, we see this. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So back in the creation story, we have these human beings made in the image of God. And that means that every single person in the room here today and every single person you encounter reflects something uniquely of God. They have value because of that, that nobody else ever has or ever will. In addition to that, there's a male way and a female way of reflecting God. And this idea of male and female, this complementary pair, is actually all through the creation story in Genesis. We see these complementary pairs. Heaven, earth, light, dark, water above, water below, land and water, sun and moon. And then the animals are created in their male-female pairs. There's this pattern of, of, of uh, complementary pairs with boundaries in between. That's the big picture in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, the focus narrows to, to the, the human beings. And so we have this story where the man is created first, and then he's invited into the work of God. And it involves naming the animals. And so as he goes about it, he says, he, meaning Adam, gives names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. And along the way, he notices, wait a minute, everything else is a pair, and I'm just by myself. There's no helper just right for me. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made, and maybe even a better translation would be fashioned, a woman from the rib. He brought her to the man. 
At last, the man exclaimed, this one is my pair. This one, right, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from the man. The male and the female of a human being, we're more alike as as genders, differences. We're more alike than we are different, right, on our DNA level. And yet there's something fundamentally different about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. This explains, which is a fascinating transition, the fact that there is a man and a woman explains what comes next. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is the fundamental statement in the Bible about marriage. Because there's a man and because there's a woman and they uniquely reflect something of God together, that's why there's marriage. So that's the original creation story. Genesis 1 and 2, they unpack God's created order before sin, important to remember. It culminates in this passage. He makes man and woman in his image, gives them this beautiful covenant union called marriage. And in the context of that marriage, we see that the man and the woman were anatomically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally fit for each other, complements to each other. They were given sex in order to bring them closer to each other, to bear children together, and to honor and worship God together. That's God's original intention for gender, sexuality, and marriage. When Genesis 3 comes along, the man and the woman choose to rebel against God's ways, paint outside the lines, if you will. I don't like boundaries, and so we're going to choose to violate the boundaries. And that's called sin. And when sin entered into the world, everything became tainted and broken including gender and sexuality. The rest of the Bible then addresses how broken people continually rebel against God and his ways and his created order and how God is continually restoring that created order in Jesus. We are all broken sexually, but that doesn't take away God's intention and his design for our sexuality. This is affirmed by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is is approached by religious leaders and they want to know about one of God's boundaries, which involved marriage. And they basically said, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus' answer to that, again, dressing divorce, but it's deeper than that. This is how Jesus answered. Haven't you read in the scriptures? Jesus replied, haven't you gone to the place where you find truth? The scriptures, for him in that day, that was what we call the Old Testament. There was the Jewish scriptures What do they say? Well, they record from the beginning, from the original creation, God made them male and female. And you're like, what does that have to do with divorce? Interesting. He starts with male and female. And then he gets to that passage on marriage. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. He goes to the creation account. The fact that there's a male and a female explains why marriage is important and why it's a covenant union to express something about God. In fact, when Paul, the apostle, writes to a church in Ephesus and talks about the importance of marriage, he goes to the same passage. And then he adds an important wrinkle. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5. As the scriptures say, again, same place, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Then he adds this. This is a great mystery. It is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Let that sink in. No marriage is just about that marriage. Every marriage is intended to communicate something, to illustrate something, a great mystery about who God is and how God relates to us as humans. Whoa. That's important. 
and it's embedded in creation. Gender, sexuality, and marriage are just as much a part of creation as orangutans and, and whales and moon and the planets and the stars, right? We don't want to miss that. Both Paul and Jesus referred back to Genesis 2. Gender and sexuality and marriage are rooted in creation, not in culture. When we make sexual decisions, we aren't merely deciding whether or not we're going to obey a few rules. We are expressing a fundamental view about the cosmos and what it means to be human. That's our starting point. That's the Bible's foundation for any conversation about sexuality. And we could have many conversations about sexuality. Now, in the course of this series, based on what's going on in the culture around us, we're focusing in on LGB. But this could be any conversation around sexuality. So to move towards the conversation around homosexuality, we need to go to where the Bible goes. The next place, or the first place, I should say, where the Bible addresses homosexuality is in the book of Leviticus. And before I put those up on the screen, I want everybody to take a deep breath. Let it out. Ready? You're going to need that. Put it up here. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man, as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man, as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. Whoa. Now, maybe some of you are like, I knew it. I knew the Bible was out of touch. I I knew it. You know, it can't be trusted for today. Capital punishment for homosexuality? Well, we're way beyond that. Now, I put it up here because it's in the Bible. And I believe the Bible, the big story, is a path to life. Once it's introduced who God is and how we relate to him. In order to understand this passage, you need to know where you are in the story. That is too often the problem that we have is we pull things randomly out, just like I did here, and then use them a lot of times as hammers to hurt people with. You need to understand where we are in the story. This is Leviticus. Anybody know the theme of Leviticus? I mean, I know it's not a place that we usually go for our morning devotions. But Leviticus is in the Bible for a reason. It has a theme. The big idea of Leviticus is every single person is guilty and deserves death. That's the theme of Leviticus. Everyone. When you're finished reading Leviticus, which I invite you to do, maybe tomorrow start your devotions. When you read it through Leviticus, you ought to come to the conclusion I am guilty, I deserve death. Not they, them, and those out there, me. And if, you have a, if you're wondering where, how you might apply to you, there's a couple others in there that I could, could point out. Uh, first of all, if you have ever disobeyed your parents, you deserve to die. Got you on that one, huh? If you ever disobeyed the Sabbath, if you ever did not take a day of rest in a given week and rest and worship God, you deserve to die. That's the theme of Leviticus. Now, I could go on, but I don't think I need to. That's the theme. And it's in the Bible so that we might turn this direction to God and say, I need a Savior. I need help. And we might thank God for the help that he sends. That's the purpose of Leviticus. Now, you may still wonder why I would quote Leviticus about homosexuality when the same book calls eating shellfish detestable. (laughs) Wearing fabric made of mixed material is detestable. Anybody wearing dry fit today? (laughs) 
just wondering. Planting different crops in the, together in the same field is detestable. How on earth should we consider this book a relevant source for truth today? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Actually, I know I asked. But again, and understand where we are in the Bible and understand the whole of the Bible. So Leviticus is a book of laws, absolutely. But it has different kinds of laws. There are moral laws that are grounded in God's created order, what we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, those laws are intended to describe what it means to be human and what it means to be grounded in who God is and what, God's, what, what God had in mind with the earth before sin entered the picture. So moral laws are things like don't murder. Why not? Because every human being is made in the image of God and has value, right? Don't have sex outside of the confines of a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Why? Because that's, that has what God designed and there's something uniquely about that that displays who God is and how he wants to relate to us. I don't know if I can say this in church, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's in the Bible. Don't have sex with animals because they're of a different created order, okay? I mean, these are the kind of things that points to the created order, to the wide boundaries God gives to these things. Don't lie. Don't tell falsehoods because God is a God of truth. Don't take, don't take God's name in vain. Don't misuse God's name. Why? Because it's the best thing in the entire universe, right? That's the moral laws that are in Leviticus. Now, in addition to that, there are ceremonial or purity laws that you find in there, and they were for the nation of Israel, a nation that in a particular point in time, God chose to be a witness for, his, for who he is to the nations around them and for all time, now, those laws were intended in that cultural moment to set them aside from all the nations around them to say, no, we're, you're going to be different. Now, those laws were unique to that cultural moment. And so they sound strange to our ears. Commands like, don't eat shellfish. The distinction matters because in the New Testament, we learn that the ceremonial laws were temporary in the big story of the Bible. They were there to point to Jesus and then they were fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why we don't need to have an altar up here with, with animals being, dying and blood pouring over because Jesus fulfilled them by dying on the cross for your sins and mine. Those were the ceremonial laws. Which means, by God's grace, we can enjoy and feast on Dungeness crab while wearing our favorite dry fit with some vegetables we do in our back plot in the back garden. Yeah? <laughs> Praise the Lord. At the same time, Jesus and the New Testament writers, the apostles, affirmed, affirmed the importance of the moral laws in Leviticus because those laws are, are grounded in God's created order, including those that address sexuality. And so that's what you see Paul doing in the first chapter of Romans, where he says, for his, meaning God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, what is true about God, I know we can't see him, but what is true about him are clearly perceived or clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that you're without excuse. If you can't look around at the created order, and I would say in particular, look at the face of the person next to you, if you can't believe there's a God, you're missing out because it's evident. But there are those that don't. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, which is the basically worship. They didn't worship God. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory, the wonder, the beauty of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We worship the created rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God 
values, our freedom, our ability to choose, our ability to, even to choose against him. And he basically says, go. He, he releases us to it, to our heart's desires. And, and they lead us astray. Gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the magnificent creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul cannot help but worship when he's writing, right? But he goes on to say, for this reason, God allowed them, gave them over to dishonorable passions. So we all have these passions that are waging war within us. And so he'll let us go with it. And one of the ways that's expressed is women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, contrary to God's design. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. This is living out Genesis 3. He's going back through the lens of Leviticus and saying this ought not be. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you hear the echoes of Genesis? Do you hear the echoes of Leviticus? Homosexuality is the illustration of passions gone awry. If you're ready to get your finger out and point, though, read to the end of uh, Romans chapter 1. There's another long list there that you will find yourself in. And if somehow you make it through that list, read into, Genesis, or into chapter 2, which talks about being high-minded and religious and judgmental, and catch yourself there. We all ought to come to the same conclusion that Paul comes to in Romans 3 where he says all sin and fall short of the glory, the beauty, the wonder of God. We are all in need of a Savior. Now, what Paul's doing is he's critiquing Roman culture because that's what the gospel does. It critiques culture with the desire to redeem culture with the gospel. That's his heartbeat. That ought to be our heartbeat. He clearly condemns homosexual behavior, but he doesn't limit himself to it. It's one part of the list. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians. This is the one that Pastor James referred to last week, and I just highlighted it again because it fits with the, you see the stream of what the, the overall teaching in the scriptures. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in second sexual sin, those who worship idols, who commit adultery, are male prostitutes, who practice homosexuality, are thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusive, if you cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. If you don't see yourself on the list, look a little more closely. Now, this is, where he, this is an important shift that he makes. Some of you were once like that. Now, this isn't that none of us sin anymore, but this is about our, now it becomes about identity. Who you are, not necessarily about what you do. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. How? Calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, the only one who can rescue us from sin. And not only from sin, but from an identity built on sin. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to a culture in the city of Corinth to a people who lived in, it was, it was a sexually explicit culture. Very much like ours. Pretty much every Christian that he wrote to in Corinth came out of a background that affirmed and celebrated sexual freedom and diversity of all kinds. Again, kind of like we are in right now. 
This was the place that devised a practice, just to give you a heads up. This was a place that devised the practice that if you wanted to meet God, if you wanted to get God's blessing on what you're doing, maybe a good business, or you wanted to know whether you're going to marry somebody or something like that, what you did is you went to the temple and you had sex with a male or female prostitute you pick. Clever of, men, of human beings to come up with such a practice. But that's the culture he was writing to. So in this passage, we hear, once again, the echoes of Leviticus. And through that, the echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. Without Jesus, we all deserve death. If you look at this list and you think some people are in and some people are out, then we're all out. Now, homosexual behavior is in the list. It's explicitly there. But it's not some kind of super sin. (laughs) And the focus here, again, is more about identity. Some of you were once like that. But Jesus rescues us out of that culture that celebrates identity built on sexuality, on partying, on greed, on exploitation, which, my friends, is our culture. But you have been washed, have been forgiven. So leave behind the identity that's built on such things. So in this passage, and through all these passages, we see a big picture of sexuality It comes through it, the scriptures, to us. That we might sum up like this. Sexuality was given as a beautiful gift to be enjoyed within covenant marriage between one man and one woman as part of God's created order. But that gift is now marred by sin and brokenness and in need of redemption. Constantly in need of redemption. My friends, this doesn't change. It is in the created order. Just like the planets go around the sun, just like an apple falls from the tree, it's just as true as any of those things. But here's the deal. Every single one of us sins sexually in one way or another. Homosexuality is one sin among many that humans use to build an identity apart from God. And when we look through the lens of identity, we have a way forward on this topic. Because in our culture, if you experience what we might call same-sex attraction you are invited, or I would say you are compelled to take that attraction and build your identity from it. Build what we might call a gay identity narrative, which closely reflects the new cultural narrative that Pastor James talked about last week. So author and psychologist Mark Yarhouse, in his excellent book, Homosexuality in the Church, describes the gay identity narrative narrative this way. Same-sex attractions signal a naturally occurring or intended by God, in other words, God made me that way, distinction between homosexuality and heterosexuality. Same-sex attractions are, bad English here, are the way you know who you really are. They are at the core of who you are as a person. So same-sex behavior is simply an extension of that core. Self-actualization, in other words, becoming who you really are, of your sexual identity is crucial for your fulfillment. That's a very compelling script that is repeated over and over and over in our culture through movies and musics, music and novels and articles and TV shows. It is a script that applies to same-sex attraction but is as old as Genesis 3. In fact, Take any desire, any craving that you have or that you might be aware of and replace that same-sex attraction with that craving. It's an identity that someone somewhere is building an identity from. It's as old as Genesis 3. 
the Bible offers a different identity script centered on Jesus. For those who experience same-sex attraction, it would sound like this. Same-sex attraction does not signal a distinction among types of persons. It is one of many human experiences that are not the way it's supposed to be. Same-sex attraction may be part of your experience, but it need not be the defining element of your identity. You can choose to integrate your experiences of same-sex attraction into a gay identity or not. You can choose to make follower of Jesus the central defining aspect of who you are and build your identity in Christ. Now, what I hope you see there, again, once again, is replace this. We happen to be having one topic today, but that doesn't mean it's anything different than other topics that we could talk about. Because what we're talking about here is discipleship, my friends. So replace this with any other craving that goes wrong. Anything we might call an addiction. Anything we turn to to find life of in the created order rather than with from our creator. So this is discipleship. Turning from those things, repenting, and turning toward Jesus. This is about sexual discipleship. Now, fascinatingly, on this one, If you look at it this way, the in Christ narrative, the goal is not to go from homosexuality to heterosexuality. The goal is to become like Jesus. This is an interesting distinction that Christopher Juan made in his autobiographical book called Out of a Far Country where he explains his journey, his, his journey through sexual struggles. He says, I'd always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. Amen to that. Yes. So when we bring our sexual desires to Jesus, whether they're same-sex desires or opposite-sex desires, Jesus gives us two options. Let those desires serve you and serve Jesus in the, in the context of a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, or use those sexual desires to fuel a celibate single life of trust-filled worship that expresses itself in love. Those are the wide boundaries that we have when it comes to our sexuality. Now, there's a false narrative behind the question, who are you to tell me who to love? The false narrative behind that is that all love is sexual love. I'm not telling you who to love. There's... Love is a wide range. There's this one part of it that is sexual love that God says, I want a boundary around this because there's more to it than what's go- what you think is going on. But this is, I'm not, you can love anyone you want. Most forms of love do not involve sexual attraction. And the God who designed sexuality and love put boundaries around sexual love for our good and for his glory. So what does this mean for us today? I believe there are some here today statistically true, who experience same-sex attraction. Welcome to Sunrise. I'm glad you're here. My invitation to you is to, to take those sexual attractions and bring them to Jesus to be discipled, to allow Jesus to be the firm foundation for your identity rather than the fulfillment of your cravings, which, by the way, is the same invitation to everybody today. Bring your cravings to Jesus. Find your identity on his firm foundation rather than the fulfillment of your cravings. The second invitation I would have for anybody here who's experiencing same-sex attraction would to bring them out of the closet. Really. We want them out. Now, I would invite you not out into the gay identity narrative, but into the in Christ narrative. 
Again, I would add the same invitation to anybody who's struggling with desires today. But here's the deal, church. For the rest of us who do not experience same-sex attraction, if somebody's going to bring them out of the closet, that means we need to be ready to love them and to receive them. Not only to receive them, but to learn from. This needs to be a safe place where the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Somebody caught up in the gay identity is no greater sinner than anyone else here. Someone who has same-sex attractions has desires waging war within them, which we all do. Let's give and receive Jesus' love and grace from everyone regardless of who they are and what they do. And I want to push on this a little bit more because any, any type, any time we mock or belittle or demean or make fun of or, or oppress or hate somebody because they've identified with the LGBTQ label, we're not just opposing an agenda. We are opposing the Most High God. That's not God's ways. Who did Jesus hang out with? He, hang out, he hung out with, 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 with sinners of all types, which is the door open to all of us. There's no room for us versus them on this topic. There's no room for enemies and allies. There's no room for this sin is better and this sin is worse or any distinction. No. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're here today, and you've been hurt by the church on this area, I just want to say I'm sorry. And please give Sunrise a chance to love you well and to be loved by you. I realize this is a heavy message. So what I want to do is I want to close the topic of sexuality the way the Bible closes the topic of sexuality. Because God's story, the big story of the Bible, it culminates in an amazing, hopeful climax. If you're paying attention, I chose that word purposefully. When Jesus and the New Testament writers describe the culmination of human history, they use the metaphor of Jesus as a loving bridegroom and the church as his bride that he is bringing into a cosmic wedding ceremony. We do not need to blush about that. There's something more going on with our sexuality than just our sexuality. The big story of the Bible that God is telling is a forever relationship of joy, trust, hope, and delight with our great lover, God. Yes. And our sexuality... It's a portal to get a glimpse into the heart of that God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, the one that I turn to for only hope that we do, would you be honored with what was just spoken? If there's anything that was not of you, please strike it from our hearts. But anywhere where your gospel was speaking, would you invite us in? Would you invite us to turn from whatever cravings, desires that we have, and we bring them to your feet? Lay them at your cross, saying, I need to be rescued. And to receive and to be grateful for your, the work that you did on the cross for our sins. And maybe today here there's somebody who has never put their trust in you. This would be the day. 
Maybe it involves same-sex attractions, maybe not. Maybe it involves a gay identity narrative. Maybe it's another narrative. That's a, but you need to turn and, and find hope in Jesus. So if that's you today, I invite you. The, the door is wide into the heart of God through the cross of Jesus. You just come and say, I admit I'm a sinner. I need help. I'm guilty. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You just say, I, I receive it. I want life in your name. And Jesus comes and he enters into your heart and he lives there and he receives you and he loves you. If that's you today, I'd invite you to take that step. Come to him, anyone who is weary and heavy laden, and find rest. We're going to transition. Just in a, in a heart of prayer, we're going to transition, as we usually do, to singing worship songs in response. And we're going to transition to to Communion where again, the ground is level. All come. Find hope in the body broken for you and the blood spilled for you. Take, eat, drink, and receive the heart of God through the person and work of Jesus. Amen.